Let's have a look at this machine of yours. How do we know that one's not a dud? Find out. Cool, cool, cool. Now you've got to understand the basics of aerodynamics in a thing like this. Shut up. Shut up. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we don't care about what anything was designed to do. We care about what it can do in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 96, which begins with Max heading around the back of the plane to find Jedediah leaning out of the cockpit. And it ends with Max speeding ahead of the plane, ready to clear the way. Wrapping up the week with us is our own personal ground control, Jim O'Kane from <laughs> Apollo 13 Minute. Thanks for having me on again. This has been a wonderful week and a very exciting, a really exciting adventure on this this particular one, watching uh, watching all these things happening and so much, so many airplane things. I feel very much at, <laughs> very much at home watching a disaster uh, unrolling on the airport uh, on on a runway. Oh, Jim, do you think it's too late for him to abort? Oh, <laughs> give him, maybe him go around. Go, just tell him to go around. <laughs> he just needs someone to wave him off. Yes, exactly. Wow. <sighs> so at the tail end of Wednesday's minute, Max was very concerned with the fact that the engine was stopped when it really should have been spinning up again. And so he runs around the back of the air truck and he hops up on the wing where Jedediah is just hanging out the side of the cockpit. And Max is like, dude, what are you waiting for? Kick her in the guts. Let's go. Uh, that doesn't sound, the kick her in the guts does not sound a uh, proper uh, aviator term to me. I just <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't kicking somebody in the guts kind of stop any forward motion. I think it would just be like uh, just picturing this uh, airplane just kind of wandering around, clutching its insides, going, "Oh, that hurt!" <laughs> <laughs> like light the fire, kick the tires, maybe. Just oh well. I love this phrase that he uses because it's a callback to the first movie. Huh. When Max is first introduced to the V8 Interceptor, Max is there, Goose is there, and the mechanic Barry is there. And Goose, who's on crutches at the time, leans over to Barry and says, kick her in the guts, Barry. And he fires up the Interceptor for that first time. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get to see the meet cute between Max and the most important vehicle in his life. <laughs> <laughs> So Max would like to recreate that meet cute with a roaring engine between mm -hmm. himself and the current, in this moment, the most important vehicle in his life. Right. But that does not happen. It's a simple matter of physics, apparently, because, uh, and dear Bruce Spence does the most beautiful little imagery here. <laughs> he he really says, does. not enough runway, and he just holds that index finger and thumb and just squeezes it it's, yeah it's not <laughs> and it's like even you know maybe you don't maybe you're not a pilot maybe you never went to flying school but you gotta add a little more runway than this he's just gonna <laughs> yeah max is known for being a driver he understands cars mm -hmm. he does not understand airplanes he should have paid attention back in Road Warrior when the gyro captain was trying to explain to him the different ideas and concepts of aerodynamics in powered flight. And Max pointed his shotgun in the gyro captain's face and said, shut up. Ah, yes, he did. <laughs> if he had listened, instead of telling him to shut up, he would have learned something and he would have been better equipped to deal with this situation years down the road. <laughs> with some other guy that looked just like that gyro captain. You right. remind yeah. me of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to be getting into these discussions all the time out here. 
the pilot here, Jedediah, is right. You know, you're going to need some kind of room. This is not a short takeoff uh, aircraft. He's going to need maybe three or 4,000 feet to get that plane in a in the air, especially the way it's overloaded. I don't think it's built to handle an entire busload of uh, kids. No. If you take Max out of the situation, you're still left with two tall men, one dwarf, one woman, two teenagers. Well, three teenagers if you count Screwloose as a teenager, and three additional children on top of that. That's 11 people. One of those teenagers is pregnant. Exactly. Eight months pregnant. So that's like 11 and a half people. Yeah, so give them all an average weight of uh, 70 pounds, say. That's, uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty pretty tricky getting almost 800 pounds into the air, and probably more. I mean, it's, it's almost a half a ton. The empty weight of the air truck is, if it's a PL-12U, is 1,800 pounds. And they have a maximum takeoff weight of 4,000 pounds, which is for like agricultural missions and things like that. But getting that thing off the ground with that many soft bodies bouncing around inside is going to be a tall order. Yeah, or a long order as we <laughs> were exactly. looking at the runway, yeah. And all of this is described to the audience. And this is, you know, one of the things you try to avoid is exposition. But this is the shortest and sweetest exposition ever of here are the stakes. (laughs) We need to take off. The runway isn't long enough. And Bruce didn't turn to the audience and go, get it? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just a beautiful, uh, almost a lampshade moment, but it it really comes across very well. Um, And you can't help but enjoy... I mean, Jedediah is one of one of the best characters in this, in this movie. Although they all, I mean, we talked about uh, a couple of days ago. We talked about you know who your favorite person was in in Barter Town and stuff. But this is the kind of movie where every time you watch it, whoever's on the screen is, I love that guy. I love that gal. She's really this is this is really cool. And every character has that. They all have. A, they all seem to have. Uh, a robust backstory and even if they don't have a robust backstory they seem to have enough personality to carry off whatever it is they're saying that you believe that they believe what they're saying yeah you would have to be some sort of joyless curmudgeon to not find some sort of enjoyment in these movies there are people that rail against this story and its execution but it's not as terrible as people make it out And it bothers me when people rank this as one of the worst movies they've ever seen because, oh boy, believe me, there are worse movies out there. It's a what if. It's, you know, what if this happened or what if that happened? And sure, you know, it doesn't make sense that in a post-apocalyptic world, you still have perfectly functional aircraft and, you know, so so many, where do they get the spark plugs from? Where do they, you know, where do they get the materials to do maintenance? Where do they get the rubber belts? How, how does that work? But you don't have to think about those kind of things because that's not the story the story that we're finding out is what kind of a man is max what kind of people are the people that he meets and you know what is he going to do if he's a man by himself why does he care about these people and why does why does he take them on as this is his job Mm -hmm. and you know you have to watch three movies to get to the point where you say well that was his job back in the day. He was a policeman. He was the protector. He was there to protect and serve. And he's never lost that, even though he's, you know, this crazy, crazy guy who defends himself and seems like a you know, lone wolf. He's very much a, uh, a community organizer, for lack of a better word. He seems to draw people to him that have special needs and he solves their problems. And he doesn't accept limitations like this. I think this is a great example right here. Jedediah is telling him in no uncertain terms, we don't have enough runway. Look, and you can see the Barter Town vehicles forming a very distinct line across that runway 
the plane's not going to be able to duck and weave between those and take off. There's just not enough room, and that room is getting shorter every moment that they wait. And Max, without being tricked, coerced, or driven by vengeance or anything like that, looks Jedediah in the eye and says, there will be. Yeah, much, much like Captain Kirk, he doesn't believe in the no-win scenario. He's always found a way out. No matter what he had to do to attain it, he will get them to their goal. Mm -hmm. It may cost him his life or his own freedom but he's going to make sure that the job gets done. And I like that in this situation, in this instance, Max is making the decision himself. Like he has a lot of knowledge behind him and knowledge in this world is the only commodity left. It hasn't been destroyed. That doesn't have to be mined. But he knows, like if, if he knows how to fix things, he knows how to repair a mecha mechanical uh, instruments. He knows real history. I mean, when he's when he's down with the uh, with the Lost Boys and they're giving him the history of what the you know what aircraft were like and what the cities were like. He knows the real story, but he doesn't often share that because it doesn't do him any good unless he can use it to uh, convince people otherwise. And you know, get for example, getting the kids to follow him to get out of where they're at. And in this point where Jedediah is telling him what can't be done. That knowledge doesn't help him any. It just means he's got to find a way to, uh, you know, based on what this guy knows, he has to find a way to make that runway longer. Yeah. And there's no clear advantage to him doing this. There's no clear way that he's going to profit personally from this action. He is volunteering to sacrifice his escape in order to make it possible for everybody else to get out of there. True. He could take that ute and just drive off and either direction up or down the edge of this cliff and get away. But instead, he chooses to drive into the storm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And taking the ute would bring him back to the beginning of the story. I mean, that's where he was. Yeah, exactly. So none of these people had ever interacted with him before, but now he has a personal stake in making sure they're okay. It's amazing. Yeah. I think this story will still hold up years from now. I think this movie will be a classic. As, as you were saying, this was, a lot of people say it's on their worst movies list or whatever. They don't, they don't like the way the story is told or they don't, they, they can't relate to the characters. But I think this has a certain timelessness about it, the idea of a self-sacrificing hero and uh, who's really, he's never thanked. He's just remembered. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we, we always have to have that kind of an anti-hero in films to, to get us to, to enjoy them. I mean, we, we are aware of characters like this. He's he's a Philip Marlowe character. He does things because this is his job. No matter what it is, mm -hmm. he'll get it done, even if it costs him his life or his safety. And... There's no, you know, <laughs> there's no time for love. There's no time for companionship. He's he's out there and going on to, you know, going on to the next thing. Now, all this talk about heading straight into the storm, it gives me pause because as we're looking at this shot of all the barter town vehicles speeding towards the plane, it's a fairly narrow line. There's only seven or eight vehicles in this group. And I've got to assume that the ground on either side of this narrow stretch is too rough or too strewn with vegetation and rocks for the plane to get enough speed to take off. Yeah, I would think so. Or otherwise he'd be able to just, you know, I'm going to make a 45 degree turn and these guys will never catch me before I'm up in the sky. 
Yeah, as wild as this area looks and as untamed as it seems, this is Jedediah's runway. He takes care of this strip of land. And under normal circumstances, it's plenty of room for just him and the kid to take off. Mm -hmm. It was only insufficient because of that extra weight. He doesn't have multiple runways like an airport does that suit the needs of different type and size and weight of aircraft. Julia, do you find it interesting that in 1984, Bruce Spence was in Where the Green Ants Dream, a story that revolved around, at one point, the creation of an airstrip in the middle of the desert. And now here we are in 1985 with Bruce Spence maintaining his own airstrip in the middle of the desert. (laughs) Maybe he learned something about what it takes to land and take off an airplane. You you can't just go out onto any strip of land. It has to be clean. Is it typecasting (laughs) manner? Actually, I was I was reminded as I was talking about the the airstrip and it not being long enough. I was reminded of the movie Rescuers Down Under, ah. where the mice take an albatross is their airplane and they are calling into the tower of a dinky little airstrip out somewhere in Australia, and they're radio in their type of aircraft, which is an albatross. And an albatross is just so large that they don't have a runway of appropriate size. (laughs) So it's a whole bit, this albatross trying to land on this airstrip. And they're frantically trying to extend the airstrip in various ways. And basically the albatross just ends up crashing and it's funny and the albatross is funny. And I have not thought consciously of the rescuers down under in years oh my gosh i love that movie (laughs) are we gonna have to put it on the hiatus list oh yes which is a shame sort of because we decided what movies we were gonna do but rescuers down under is a pretty great movie well i'll put it on the list of consideration okay we have so many movies on this list of consideration yeah that we're not going to get to them until after fury road oh yeah there's no way What was the kids' movie that we were going to do? Because we always do one kids' movie in between. The kids' movie that we were going to do during this upcoming hiatus is Chicken Run, starring the voice of Mel Gibson. That's a really good one, too. Also about flying. Yep, that's true. (laughs) Man, there's just too many. There's just too many good movies. And if if memory serves, didn't uh, Mel Gibson's character wear goggles in that one? I'm just thinking nobody wears goggles in this thing. I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> uh, we're just uh, still looking at all those uh, uh, the the folks driving the cars uh, in uh, uh, heading heading for uh, heading for the the plane, and I still don't see anybody with goggles on, <laughs> which is a real shame. That would have been a great opportunity to show off some costume design. Yeah, the costume design in Road Warrior, and then again in this movie, has been so spectacular. And each time unique in their own ways, although there are similarities between them. So it's a shame we didn't get fantastic goggles. Yeah, I mean, they all, <laughs> they all had fantastic headpieces. I mean, the mohawks and all that jazz yeah. that looked beautiful. But all you had to do was just put <laughs> just just put two little round windows in front of it. It would have been fantastic. But mm-hmm. oh, well, someday in the uh, the remastered edition, they'll probably uh, start CGIing in there. So you... CGI goggles on all the drivers. <laughs> Careful motion control and all that. Yeah. I'm watching Auntie and her cadre speeding along the desert here, and there's a nice close-up of Auntie right around second 38, and over her 
left shoulder, you can see the black finger. And he's got this big old dumb grin on his face, but his eyes are squinted yeah. <laughs> so far together mm-hmm. that he might as well have them shut. You know, he's grinning because he is having a blast. He gets to be in the thick of all the activity. He gets to be a hero. He gets to be out of the dark cave in which he normally works. Fresh air. Fresh air and sunshine. So he's having a ball, but then he's not wearing goggles. Yeah. yeah. So he can't see anything. And, and that, that particular shot is what I was talking about um, back on Wednesday. It's it's another one of those ones where they fake you out like it's a tracking shot and they're filming this at speed. But all it is is they're, they're kind of, you know, they're on a mount and the, the, the truck body is shaking. And uh, the camera just slowly moves up over the over the steering wheel toward uh, toward Tina Turner, and they're just blowing dust around them. So I'm, I'm sure there's a fan blowing dust, but but it's, they're motionless and it's just a, a shaking truck. But a beautiful a beautiful effect that that we accept as yeah, that's they're really pouring on the speed now. <laughs> now it's been a while since I last looked up any sort of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome drinking rules, but I'm pretty sure one of them was any time you get a low angle shot on a vehicle where it's not actually moving in reality take a drink, take a oh, drink. okay so somewhere in the uh, in the 40th second of this minute <laughs> <laughs> they are that frequent yeah. and really it's a trick that they've been employing long before George Miller ever dabbled in making movies mm-hmm. but George employs it particularly well to great effect yes because he combines it with other tricks to make vehicles look like they're going faster than they really are so that accentuates its believability Oh, now that I'm here, I can finally ask the experts about this. I've always wondered, looking at costuming, uh, Anthony entity's costume. Are those earrings or is it a headpiece that she's wearing on either side of her head? We think that it is more of a headpiece, that they're not actually dangling from her ears. Okay. That they are, if I remember right, there's a strip of something going, going across her yeah, forehead, Yeah, she right? wears a band across her forehead that wraps around the entirety of her head and those giant hoops hang off of that band. Yes. Ah, Almost like a tiara? Am I using that word Uh, wrong? A circlet? If it goes around the Um, the top of her head. An adorned circlet. That's what I feel Hmm. good about. Okay, I'm I'm okay with that. (laughs) They, They behave like earrings. They're just not attached to her ears. Because if they were, they would tear her earlobes yeah, that's, off. Yeah, that's uh-huh. what I was thinking. Unless they like <laughs> completely in, like, enclosed her ears and they're actually like ear dungeons. Because uh, <laughs> they just, they seem to be, they seem to be perilously close to her ear. So figuring maybe, hmm. maybe it's a combination of they have them strapped on there and also on her hair. So uh, she doesn't lose them at high speed through the, uh, <laughs> through the desert. <laughs> yeah. As to the, the other costumes. Now I've forgotten the Mr. Goodwrench guy, his name, but uh, black, black finger, black, black finger, finger. Yeah. black finger. Yeah. Uh, the, co- are the costumes, uh, on display anywhere i was because i love his i love his helmet that's just such a a cool thing i don't know whatever whatever became of it or if there's a a mad max museum that it's visible at i would always i would love to see that particular helmet there is a mad max museum in i want to say silverton new south wales let me check that real quick yep the mad max museum is in silverton new south wales on sterling street it is open from 10 a.m to 4 p.m daily oh okay so any day of the week that you want to go over there. Even on Sunday? Even on Sunday. Oh. Oh, okay. Well, I will, <laughs> I'll make an appointment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how much memorabilia they have from the first and third movies, but they certainly have a lot of stuff from Road Warrior. 
It seems culturally that Road Warrior really is the movie. It's the one everybody loves and adores and takes tours of locations throughout Australia to visit. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, and then this is trying to recapture that magic with with more of a budget. If I mean, if you want to be cynical about it. <laughs> It's like, that worked. Let's do it again, and we'll do it with uh, Tina Turner this time. Yeah. But you can visit the the cove where they filmed The Waiting Ones, their encampment. Uh-uh. You can visit there. It's not far outside of Sydney, right? Mermaid Cove? Is that what it's called, I think? So, the Mermaid Cove. And then Bartertown has been engulfed by suburbia, right? <laughs> Bartertown has been filled in with water and turned into a nature preserve because endangered frogs lived in that area. Oh. The Mermaid's Cave is in the Coachwood Glen in Blackheath, up in the Blue Mountains. So, that's that's all still there. Okay, I'm... Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. just always I'm always terrified to find out that you know thirty uh, th- uh, you know like thirty years have gone by and now you know we're we're looking at this uh, runway but now it has an HOA and there's a you know swimming pool and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a bunch of four bedroom colonials all you know so uh, but yeah it's uh, it's probably still all the same they don't really change that change that much in the outback yeah it would be really interesting for them to turn cooper pd into a tract housing development area because it's just so far away from everything yeah <laughs> yeah we had we had quite a surprise with the rocketeer where they had uh, the original bigelow hangar and things like that where the where the rocketeer had found found his uh, x3 rocket pack that's part of a uh, Santa Rosa airport and it's uh I'm sorry Santa Maria airport and nowadays it's enclosed with a fence it's still a museum and they've they've preserved the uh, Bigelow hangar that Disney built but it's all kind of fenced off in a corner and it's got uh, uh, fighter jets parked in front of it you know it's part of a museum which is great I mean it's still being used but it just doesn't look like that um, 1930s oil fields of Los Angeles <laughs> look uh, <laughs> civilizations kind of crept in and now there's you know a Home Depot and Barnes and Nobles and a Cheesecake Factory down the corner and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah. it's changed. There's... It's so hard when you make a movie and you leave behind sets and you have memorabilia. It's so hard to tell when 20 years down the road, someone is going to want to look at this stuff. Like, do you sell it off and get rid of it? Or do you hold on to it so that someday you can have a museum? Yeah. And at the time they made this movie, they had no idea if anybody was going to care about it in 20 years. Yeah, or that or that there would be people making podcasts about it, discussing, right. <laughs> discussing it a minute at a time. <laughs> but, it, you know, if anything, it's anybody that kept any of the ephemera is now probably uh, more valuable because there's so many fans wanting to uh, see it or at least touch a piece of it. Oh, yes. absolutely. Uh, we were just having a discussion on uh, with the Apollo 13 minute uh, podcast uh, They've recently, well, at the time we were recording this, they recently uh, uh, demolished the uh, LC-17, uh, and uh, there, there's there's two uh, launch complexes. Uh, many of the early satellites that were launched by NASA in the early 60s uh, popped off of those pads, and they were finally torn down uh, today because nobody's using them anymore. The, the rockets that were built to uh, run off those pads are outdated, and they're actually making room for uh, a company called Moon Express building uh, uh, surveyors and landers for the moon, and they just need a different style of, of launch pad that can be um, 
it, it, they no longer use the static launch pad. They're using things that can kind of uh, prop themselves up off the ground and fire. So, you know, in a way it's sad. It's like, oh, you're losing this historical, um, you know, this historical pad where so many things came from. But isn't it better that you use it for something that's, you know, going to be happening in the future? It's it's like rebuilding an old pier that was getting rusted out. Unfortunately, you know, I mean, the, the downside on when you're making movies, it becomes increasingly more difficult to recreate if you're, you're going to do the sequel going back to the same spot and filming stuff, new things appear in the background. But fortunately, you know, with uh, Thunderdome being mostly filmed in the middle of nowhere, they could go, they can go back and as they're doing, making movies in the same place uh, with, uh, you know, similar background. So as we follow the efforts to take off, we see that Max has leapt into his camel truck and he is now driving separate from the air truck. And as he pulls up alongside, we get this really good close up right around second 52 of the people that he has helped along the way peering out the side of this plane and each one of these individuals max has affected personally in some way you go from left to right starting with savannah and you think about how max has changed her life because she took a leaving she left her tribe behind and she stumbled upon him and he was more or less her ticket back home but despite him bringing her back to her tribe so that she can see her people again. He also fundamentally upended her worldview and in doing so gave her the courage and the gumption to leave that world behind, but in a different context. So he fundamentally changed her in that way. Yeah, he really did. From the very moment that they met and he was unconscious when they did so, yeah, her world was never going to be the same and there was nothing she could do about it. She couldn't stop it, even if she wanted to. And then moving along, you've got Screwloose, who was a loner. He was apart from the rest of the waiting ones. And with Max's arrival, Screwloose, I would assume, seemed to change. He had someone new that he could look to, someone new that he could emulate. And it's by emulating Max that he was able to grab a frying pan, wield it like a weapon, jump from one moving vehicle to the other, commandeer it, and defeat Feet an enemy. Yeah, most of the kids, I would argue, including Savannah, who is the most capable among them, most of the kids just sat back and let all of this happen around them. But not Screwloose. He took action mm -hmm. and he did so expressly because he was emulating Max. He did exactly what Max did and he made a significant contribution to the overall fight. And Savannah, I mean, Savannah had to learn something new in terms of giving up command that she was making all the decisions she was going to do this and that you know she she decided how things were going to be and max took over and you know led them out and did you know did what he needed to do and at this moment where we're watching them taking off she's okay with that she's okay with max having decided for them what to do she regrets that she sees her, you know literally her path is diverging from from where max is but she finally had a taste of not being the one in charge. I'm sure that was a relief to her. Mm. Being in charge is exhausting. Having everybody always looking to you, that's an enormous amount of stress and an enormous amount of pressure. She took a group of people who were exhibiting faith in her 
and her actions, she took them out into the desert and very nearly got them killed. And two of them died doing that. So to have Max come in, not only save her life, but to then also take control, make decisions, have more knowledge than her. I'm sure she was grateful for that relief. One nice thing is that Max didn't criticize or give a lecture. Nope. He never said, I told you so. Didn't do any sort of belittling. Nope. Of Savannah. Nope. Because the world is too hard for him to make a bad situation worse by talking down to her. Absolutely. I can't imagine that it even occurred to him to say something to her about the lives lost because she wanted to go out into the desert. He did everything he could to stop her, but once she actually did it and he could no longer stop her, well, then he's going to save her life and he's going to continue to work to make sure that they are safe, even at his own detriment. He let her learn that lesson on her own without having to sit her down and really hammer it home for her. Yeah, it's a parenting job of natural consequences and letting, you know, (laughs) letting her receive those natural consequences. Mm -hmm. Speaking of changing of command, uh, we see uh, Master third in the row there. And he was toppled from a position of command by Max, or at least his actions caused him to lose his power base uh, by losing Blaster. And now Master is found, he's no longer the guy in charge. He's more along for the ride and just, you know, a matter of survival now and has to let other people make decisions for him. Yeah. Master got an incredible humbling when he lost Blaster. And I like that As these people are flying away, Master actually raises his hand to wave of sorts to Max. Yeah. And I find that significant. That Master, this antagonistic force that Max had to contend with, is now bidding him adieu as they part. As if to say, we have not seen eye to eye on a lot of things. And our situation was not beneficial, our meeting. But what's done is done. Thank you for helping me get out of Underworld. And it it's also interesting in his change of costume. Master is now, you know, Master was a creature of habit. He knew the status quo. He knew... You know what the how where the pyramid was, and he was you know up on the top side of that pyramid. Um, but now he's he's no longer you know the master of anything except you know his he he decides whether or not to, if he's going to live or die, and he's decided to stay with the people who are going to live. He's dressed rather professorially. He has a he has on a tweed jacket, even with the uh, the elbow patches, mm-hmm. and he's wearing uh, uh, reading glasses, and uh, just looks rather um, pondering. He it was very very thoughtful in this. He's kind of immersed immersed in thinking about not his, not only his own future, but where Max was going, and what would happen to him. And then, of course, you have Pig Killer. Next in line. Pig Killer was never a master. You know, he's kind of the opposite of man. He never was the master of his fate. He's always like things happen to him. He just accepted his fate. But now he's free. And and everything that goes along with that, he has to make decisions to be part of the group and participate far beyond his escape plan. And I think Max's biggest influence on Pig Killer is just being there to help facilitate their escape. Pig Killer probably had those plans percolating in his head for a long time, and then Max comes along, is that wild card in the situation, and just gave the situation enough of a nudge that it could happen. Yeah, Max got him to pull the trigger on it. Yeah, and the last one that we see in that shot of the people in the window is actually Anna Goanna, who's in that final last tiny window. And sure, she had a very precocious way about her, but when she needed someone 
to go with her to go save her friends. Max was there. She was the one that woke him up when Savannah left and took the others. She was the one that dragged him to the edge of the nothing. And when Max decided that he was going to go, she was the one there with all the water. And he was the one that facilitated her taking that heroic step to go out into the nothing and save her friends. He helped her do that and make it successful, even if she did lose Gecko in the process. And even though the Gecko storyline ended there in the movie, in the continuation of it in the screenplay, Max was the one who, when they found Gecko, he made a litter and he dragged Gecko along. He wasn't going to leave Gecko behind to die. So he brought him along. He was there with Anna Goanna when Gecko died. And those are all very fatherly actions that he is the one she went to when she needed help. He was the one there when she emotionally needed somebody. And that is very paternal. And now she's saying goodbye to this brand new paternal figure that she just met. Mm -hmm. And after we look at them, we get this shot of Max and he's looking back at them. And in classic Max style, he doesn't give anything away. And the, the music that's that's coming along with it, it's very much, I mean, it, it feels a bit like Elgar's pomp and circumstance or uh, or kind of the uh, the battle at the end of the 1812 overture. There's a sense of, it's almost a baccalaureate thing. All these, all these folks are graduating from the lives that they've had before. This is obviously the turning <laughs> point. It's very... It's very solemn music that's being played. There's timpanies and it, it just has these synthetic horns going. And you just feel, I mean, it is the end of the movie, but its you just feel it, there is a, a chapter closing here. Mm-hmm. And I think you're seeing... The, the facial expressions on all the characters is one of uh, you know, also realizing that this is this is it. This is they know that they're being rescued because of Max, and they're. I mean, I don't. I don't think they're worried about making it because they they know what was sacrificed, and now they're going to have to face their future. And I think it's appropriate that Max doesn't smile or nod or do anything. He just turns to look ahead and then speeds up because Max is not the kind of person to give away what he's thinking. He's very masked. But at the same time, you look into his eyes and you know that he's looking at them thinking, they're why I'm doing this. I'm doing this for them, not for myself. Do you think that the movie could have ended at the end of this minute? and been fine. I feel like this movie could end not at the end of this week, but maybe at the end of next week. Wait, doesn't the movie end at the end of next week? No, there's three more weeks after this. Okay. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't have been bad if it just, as they peeled away and then had, uh, you know, had Max driving off into the distance. So we never see the confrontation between him and uh, and Tina Turner's people. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that I keep thinking about is Auntie Anthony's name for him or nickname for him is Soldier. Mm-hmm. And he is being very much the soldier here more than more than ever before. There's a line in the Star Spangled Banner in the, the often missed second uh, stanza that uh, uh, thus be it ever that free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation. And that's that's what he is. He is the free man. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, he's he's making his decision to stand. These are these are the only loved ones he has left. And uh, definitely war and desolation is what he's facing as, as we're ending this minute. So uh, uh, he really uh, he really earned the term uh, soldier that uh, that Annie Annity calls him. He does. I think this movie could end in minute 99 as soon as Auntie Annity 
says goodbye soldier hops in her car and drives away and just leaves max walking along the desert i don't think you necessarily needed to show the plane flying to sydney but that's something that we'll discuss very specifically in week 33 yeah of 36 I really like the imagery that we close with of Max saying goodbye with looks to these people that he has so affected and driving off ahead of them. We know Max well enough over the course of three movies to know that whatever fight he has planned, he is going to succeed. That plane is going to take off and they are going to fly to safety. So I like the thought of just ending it here and knowing that everything is going to be okay. I do think you need to see the plane actually take off. You can't just end the movie with Max speeding ahead from here and not resolve it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, you're right. But I like my ending too. Yeah, okay. Anywhere in there you could get... I mean, there, there are movies where they just... Spielberg does that a lot where you could stop the movie and... It's like, no, let's, and then what happened? You don't need the end, then what happened? It's nice to have. I mean, you get a nice little coda there. That would have been nice on the DVD. They had been a little bit more involved with DVDs in 1985. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it would have been a good enough ending right here. And I, you could even argue the point that maybe seeing the future grown up versions of all these people is something that the audience wanted to see. But I, I, I agree. I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> well, let's put a pin in everything. We are here at the tail end of 32. By the end of week 33 next week, we will be done with Max. So get all that to look forward to. But in the meantime, Jim, here at the tail end of the week, where should people go to find more of your stuff? Well, uh, always go out to uh, moviesbyminutes.com because my uh, the, the particular shows that I've been in, Airport Minute, where we follow the 1970 movie Airport, uh, also uh, the Rocketeer Minute, where we follow the 1991 Disney movie, The Rocketeer. You can find this always at uh, Apollo 13 Minute, which is almost done by the time that this... Uh, particular show is is airing uh, where we talk to people who have been around the moon and back of the moon and have talked to the people who have been around the moon and back of the moon uh, so check check in on uh, on Apollo 13 our most recent event there's some other ones coming up but uh, I don't want <laughs> I don't want to reveal them now uh, but check uh, if if you go to uh, moviesbyminutes.com just look down toward the bottom of it there may be one or two new ones uh, showing up that that I'm involved with one of the nicest features about moviesbyminutes.com is that there's a big old search bar at the top and you can start typing the name of a movie and if there's a movie by minute podcast for it it will pop right to the top so you just go in that search bar type the word apollo heck i think you could even just do apo and apollo 13 minute will pop right up to the top unless apocalypse now minute is out now well yeah but (laughs) i don't know what people are working on things they don't tell me yes it's exciting to look forward to (laughs) as for us when we come back on monday max will take his place in front of the plane and clear the way in a spectacular fashion that allows jedediah to get the plane off the ground and away from auntie and her goon squad So come on back after the weekend and we'll see you on Monday. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. 
Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 96 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Everybody